You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Ezra chapter 8, we have the continuation of the leadership of Ezra leading a contingent of Israelites from Babylon to Jerusalem. And of course, as I've mentioned before, the book of Ezra is divided into two main parts. Chapter 1 through 6, the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel uh, at the edict of King Cyrus in leading the people of God, uh, 49,000 plus of them, to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then years later, after the completion of the temple, uh, 60 years after its completion, 79, 80 years after Zerubbabel initially went, you have then Ezra leading a second wave of people, a much smaller group of people, uh, to Jerusalem. And Ezra's goal, really, was not the rebuilding of the temple, for that had already been built, and was not really the rebuilding of the city, for that would be taken care of by Nehemiah. But the thing that Ezra was focused on was the rebuilding of God's people. Uh, they had abandoned God's word in many ways and had begun to intermarry and neglect the simple practices of a walk in relationship with God. And Ezra was a man whose heart was so for the word of God that he longed to go and to teach the word of God to uh, God's people. And so in Ezra chapter 8, before we see any of Ezra's teaching, we've already learned in chapter 7 a little bit about Ezra himself and the great permission that he was given by King Artaxerxes. But as he, uh, before he gets there, we have the record of the actual journey here in chapter 8. And in the first 14 verses, we have a record of some of the men, uh, the leaders that Ezra brought with him on this journey. It says in Ezra chapter 8, verse 1, these are the heads of the father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes uh, the king. And in verse 2 through verse 14, you have a list of uh, different men, leaders, uh, 18 heads of families, uh, along with the men that were connected to each one of these leaders. And the total of all of these men listed in verse 2 to 14 comes out to about 1,500 people uh, in total. And then if you read later on into the chapter, as we will, we'll see that there were then an additional 258 Levites who joined them on this journey, which would come to 1,772 people. And then if you add uh, the women and the children, then you come to a conclusion that there were with Ezra under his leadership at this return, perhaps four to 5,000 people that were returning to the land of Israel and specifically to Jerusalem uh, at this time, which, you know, is a decent caravan, obviously, but it's a very small number in comparison with the amount of Israelites that were living in Babylon at the time. And it's a small number in comparison with the 49,000 plus who returned with Zerubbabel at Cyrus's edict uh, almost 80 years 
earlier. And the question that we ought to ask is, why did so few people return uh, with Ezra? And we can really only guess, so we shouldn't spend too much time guessing, but uh, it is very possible and probable that life in Babylon had become very secure and comfortable for many people. And even though there were, uh, you know, some estimate two to three million Jews uh, living in Babylon at the time, a, a very small group, a, a small minority found the desire to lay down their lives in such a difficult way. And then perhaps beyond that, uh, as the years passed by and they continued to lay down their roots in a new country, a new territory, perhaps the vision that they'd had of being uh, a light to the nations had just faded almost into nothingness. And so perhaps the mission of God even in their hearts had come to, you know, just a very low ebb inside of the nation. And then perhaps there's the reason that, you know, when you talk about building something externally, you know, a, a house, a temple, something tangible for God, uh, people generally, I think, are excited about that kind of thing. But when you talk about discipleship and scriptures and challenging people with God's word, I think there's a... Uh, smaller amount of people who get excited about that kind of thing. And so what you have here with this group of four to 5,000 people is you have a very dedicated group of believers who long to see spiritual revival inside of the nation of Israel. And so uh, Ezra here builds his team with all of these people. And in verse 15, uh, they're traveling and it says, Ezra, of course, again, speaking in the first person, he says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So they travel and uh, probably uh, 100 or 130 miles uh, to this location, uh, to this river that runs to Ahava. And we don't have the exact location of this river. Rivers, after all, uh, can change. And so uh, he is there, though, at this place. And it took them, you know, nine days to travel this far. So, you know, they were traveling about, uh, you know, if if they traveled uh, between seven and 13 miles a day, then, you know, you'd maybe say, okay, there may be uh, 60 to 130 miles away, something like that. And so there they are at this place and they stop and they camp for three days. And Ezra begins to look around and he realizes here in verse 15 that none of the sons of Levi uh, were with them as a people. Now, this was problematic because of the call that Ezra had upon his life. Ezra was called to go and to communicate uh, the word of God with God's people. And Leviticus 10 verse 11 makes it clear that the mission statement for the Levites was to teach the people of Israel 
all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. They, the Levites, shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. And so, uh, you know, Ezra has this realization there at the river that runs to Ahava. He realizes this is not good. We don't have the men required to fulfill the mission that's in front of us. I mean, the desire for the word of God to run was at a low ebb inside of the nation in general, but it seems as if amongst the Levites, uh, it had an even uh, lower ebb and, and just the passion for God's word was not present. None of the sons of Levites uh, had gone. And so Ezra knew that, okay, we've got to do something about this. Now, fortunately, he knew of a little settlement of Levites uh, near a place or at a place uh, called Casaphia. And so he says in verse 16, then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshalem, leading men, and for Joy Arib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place in Casaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And so, you know, there are times where you have to as a leader in the body of Christ, put out the general invitation to serve the Lord. And then there are times you have to tactfully, uh, specifically invite certain people into the work. And that's exactly what Ezra is doing at this time. He pulls together nine leading men and two men who were called men of insight. And he sends them to a town called Casaphia, uh, and to a man in that town named Ido and told him what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants. He's basically recruiting some Levites uh, for the work of God. Great tact, great care, great concern as he does it. But Nehemiah is, or excuse me, Ezra is unwilling to move forward without these Levites. And so he sends for them by the hand of these 11 men, nine leading men and two uh, wise men. And the good hand, verse 18, of our God was on us. And they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Melai, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. So Ezra here uh, is able to recruit uh, in this town 38 Levites from two different families. Uh, Sherebiah's family offered 20 Levites and Jeshiah's family offered, uh, tw uh, excuse me, 18 from Sherebiah and 20 from Jeshiah uh, were willing to go and be a part of this uh, work. And so 
38 Levites, but notice as well in verse 20, 220 temple servants. And so a huge amount of temple servants in comparison with the 38 Levites who were willing to go. Now these temple servants were are an interesting group because they were uh, of mixed origins and were inferior to the Levites in status, but they responded in larger numbers than the Levites to go and serve in the temple. God's spirit had motivated them. They were going to have to do things that were uh, in their service, uh, just, you know, um, not glorious in nature, just preparations and uh, service and all of that. And yet, there was still this spirit within them where they were willing to go and be used mightily uh, by uh, the Lord uh, for the work there in the temple. Just admirable men, these temple servants, willing to go and serve the Lord at all costs. They hear the invitation and there seems to be this eagerness inside of their hearts. And it is interesting that in both returns, the, the return of Zerubbabel and the return of Ezra, it seemed that both men had a difficult time uh, recruiting Levites for the work. And uh, again, this probably had something to do with the ease of life that they were experiencing in Babylon uh, compared with the difficult life that they would have to leave, uh, lead in Jerusalem uh, because they were going to have to be the servants really of the nation. It was hard work what these men were going to have to do. And, you know, perhaps they had really come upon good times there in Babylon, a little bit of luxury, and they, they didn't have to serve maybe in the capacity that they would have to serve in Jerusalem. And perhaps it was just a difficult thing to motivate these men uh, to do. But nonetheless, 220 temple servants and 38 Levites join this uh, band of people that are willing to travel with Ezra the 900 miles there to Jerusalem. Now, when they arrive uh, to join uh, Ezra at the river Ahava, it says in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And so before a great work of God or a great move of God, uh, there is prayer. And this time of prayer uh, took the form of fasting uh, before the Lord. I love what someone said. They said, waiting time is never wasted time. I think a lot of times we want to just rush out and do something wonderful uh, for God, for the Lord. But it's good for us to wait upon the Lord, to pray, to cry out to him, to receive his power, his grace, his strength, his protection, and his provision uh, upon our lives. And these people here at the leadership of Ezra, he proclaimed the fast. They fasted uh, for a, a season that they might seek the Lord, humble themselves before God, and to ask him specifically, verse 21, for a safe journey for themselves, their children, and all of their 
goods. And so if a man like Ezra, as intensely biblical as Ezra, thought that fasting before the Lord uh, was a way to humble themselves before God and to be able to petition God for things like safety, then we have a wonderful truth there about fasting. And there are wonderful biblical reasons for uh, fasting. Uh, here, of course, we see that there's this humility that is stirred up before the Lord, lowering, lowering yourself before God in order to petition uh, the Lord. And you see the people of Nineveh doing the same thing in Jonah chapter 3, petitioning the Lord for salvation. Uh, you see in Isaiah 58 verse 6, petitioning the Lord to loose the bonds of those who are enslaved. Uh, uh, we see Daniel fasting and at the end of his fast receiving revelation. Uh, we see a, an abstinence of food in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 uh, for victory over the flesh. So there is something powerful about fasting uh, before the Lord. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast. And so, you know, as much as there might be some uh, mystery surrounding the practice of fasting, and as much as there is, have perhaps been uh, perversions of this practice, it does seem like a normal biblical thing to at times fast before the Lord, to abstain uh, from food in order to replace uh, that with the seeking of the Lord, abasing yourself before the Lord. Because, you know, when you're a couple of days into a fast, you realize how weak you truly are. And perhaps we might feel quite often stronger than we truly are. But when you fast, you realize your weakness and you're able to cry out to God and say, God, please help us in this uh, process. Strengthen us. Watch over us. Lord, defend us. And so the people here, if feeling their weakness as they fasted, were declaring their weakness unto the Lord. Now, in verse 22, Ezra gives us a little editorial note as to specifically why he wanted to fast for protection. And here's why. He says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So apparently, you know, a hundred miles earlier, uh, before Ezra had left, he had told the king, listen, you know, our God, he protects his people. Perhaps he'd told the king of the story of uh, the great victory over the Egyptian armies at the Red Sea. Perhaps he had recounted for Artaxerxes the stories of the conquests during Joshua's era or the stories of the victories at, during the time of the judges or perhaps some of the great battles that were won by King David and the people of Israel as the kingdom had expanded. 
But nonetheless, he had declared to the king, we don't need an army because when we're inside of God's will, God protects us and God gives us the victory. Perhaps he had been quoting Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And so he had this confidence, sort of this sanctified boasting in the Lord. But they get out to the outskirts of town, a hundred miles away, and they're at this river, ready to go into the treacherous part of their journey. And this fear, really, in one sense, comes upon them, and they realize, we really better pray and ask the Lord to help us in this matter and to defend us and to protect us. And so, just a beautiful thing. Now, the interesting part of this is that a few years later, uh, Nehemiah would ask the same king for uh, an escort militarily. And God doesn't rebuke it. It's granted to Nehemiah. And so, you know, God seems to work with both perspectives. And I think it highlights for us the important the importance of the role of the conscience that the Lord has given to us personally. Ezra just couldn't bring himself to ask for an army. It really wouldn't have been unbiblical for him to do so, but it was his personal conviction that the Spirit of God had given to him, and he needed to respond to that reality. Uh, Nehemiah, on the other hand, shared no such conviction, and because it wasn't unbiblical for him to ask for this kind of help, he asked for this kind of help, and God granted it uh, to him. So really kind of removes the possibility for the legalist to come in and say that it must be one way or another. God works in both accounts. Then he says in verse 24, I set apart 12 of the, leaving, uh, of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and 650 vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And so all of these weights and measurements come to a modern valuation of all of this in the millions of dollars. And so what that tells us is that this was a, uh, you know, valuable uh, caravan. They had lots of treasure. Uh, and so now you have the reason for Ezra's fear as they traveled uh, these 900 miles. He was concerned that they would be sitting ducks because of the, uh, you know, great financial wealth that they were carrying with them. And so Ezra does a very wise thing here, though, in this transport. He gets some trustworthy men, priests, and he commits certain amounts of treasure into their hands. And rather than just saying to them, here, here you go, give it back to us when we arrive, he counts it out and measures it. And then when they would arrive, they would measure it out once again to make sure that all of it had arrived 
safely. And of course, this was for the benefit of everyone involved. You know, it was for the benefit of the work of God, obviously, because they needed that those resources to be able to pay for the things that they were going to do uh, there in the temple as they began to worship the Lord. And it was for the benefit of the workers of God because, you know, uh, even the best man might be tempted to dip into those uh, resources a little bit if there was no accountability, but now he gives accountability. Everything's in the light. And when you bring something into the light, you quite often kill the temptation. And as well, these men would have been blessed by the counting out of the these monies because it, had they not done that, then the people themselves might have looked at them with an eye of suspicion. And so they were able to transparently uh, handle the resources, the money. Paul did a similar thing when he collected an offering from the church in Corinth and told them, choose a few men of good reputation to carry the money to Jerusalem. In other words, if you just pick one guy, then, you know, he might fall under temptation. Let's be above reproach. Let's make sure we do everything uh, in the light. But I think in a spiritual sense, this also speaks to us concerning our own personal stewardship. The Lord entrusts uh, certain uh, measurements into our hands, whether they are gifts, abilities, finances, time, treasure, health, and asks us to be faithful and obedient uh, in this life to him. And I think when we arrive uh, at, at, on his, uh, into his kingdom for all of eternity, we want to be able to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Ezra said to them, verse 28, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So again, he entrusts all of this into their hands. Now we have just a little bit of detail about the journey itself. Then we departed, verse 31, from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem and there we remained three Days. So they arrive in Jerusalem, and like Nehemiah later, uh, they take time, three days, and just sort of, you know, acclimate themselves. But on the fourth day, verse 33, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuai. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. So again, the plan worked and everything made it there uh, safely. At that time, verse 35, 
Those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. And so what we have here at the close of this chapter is the arrival of Ezra with this delegation, these group, this group of people from Babylon. And, you know, they take a few days, they then count out all the money, and then they celebrate. They worship the Lord. They offer the burnt offering and the sin offering. You know, acknowledging the mercies of God, thanking God for his mercies, and then acknowledging their unworthiness to receive these mercies from the Lord. And it's interesting, it gained such momentum that uh, the people in that region, the satraps and the governors, they just jump right on board because of the permission that Ezra has been granted and they get involved as they were supposed to commanded by Artaxerxes. They get involved with aiding uh, the work of the worship of God in the house of God. Just the strong leadership of this man, Ezra, charging forward, plowing forward towards revival. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.